Are you ready to take your intermittent fasting lifestyle to the next level? There's nothing better than community to help with that. In the Delay Don't Deny community, we all embrace the clean fast, and there's just the right support for you as you live your intermittent fasting lifestyle. You can connect directly with me in the Ask Jen group, and I'll answer all of your questions personally. If you're new to intermittent fasting or recommitting to the intermittent fasting lifestyle, join the 28-Day Fast Start group. After your fast start, join us for support in the first-year group. Need tips for long-term maintenance? We have a place for that. There are many more useful spaces beyond these, and you can interact in as many as you like. Visit jenstevens.com community to join us. An annual membership costs just over a dollar a week when you do the math. If you aren't ready to fully commit for a year, join for a month, and you can cancel at any time. If you know you'll want to stay forever, we also have a lifetime membership option available. IF is free. You don't need to join our community to fast. But if you're looking for support from a community of like-minded intermittent fasters, we're here for you at jenstevens.com community. That's jenstevens.com community. Achieving my long-term goals is more about creating healthy habits and less about quick fixes. And that's why I love both intermittent fasting and daily harvest. Tim Spector, a gut health expert and founder of Zoe, and Dr. B, gastroenterologist and author of Fiber Fueled, recommend that you aim for at least 30 unique plant foods per week. Daily Harvest helps make it easy. One of my favorite options is the sweet potato and wild rice hash harvest bowl. With Daily Harvest, I'm getting tons of plant-based options built on organic fruits and vegetables that are easy to prep and free of weird ingredients such as fillers, seed oils, and added sugars. Create healthy habits that last with Daily Harvest. For a limited time only, go to dailyharvest.com ifstories to get $30 off your first box plus free shipping. That's dailyharvest.com ifstories for $30 off your first box and free shipping. Daily harvest.com slash is stories. Welcome to Intermittent Fasting Stories. I'm your host, Jen Stevens, author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat, as well as the book that started it all, Delay Don't Deny. I lost over 80 pounds thanks to intermittent fasting after learning how to delay my eating rather than denying myself the delicious foods I want to eat. Now, Who's ready to hear an inspirational intermittent fasting story? That's why we're here. So let's get excited to talk to today's guest. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 307 of Intermittent Fasting Stories. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest who I have been a fan of since I first stumbled upon his work in 2015. It's Dr. Tim Spector, who you may recognize as the person who wrote the foreword for my book, Cleanish, which was such an honor for me. Tim lives in the UK, where he is a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College in London. I had to practice saying genetic epidemiology, by the way, Tim. I was like, I'm gonna, it's gonna happen. I'm gonna be able to say it, but I think I did. And he is an award-winning expert in personalized medicine and the gut microbiome. And anyone who knows me knows what a big fan I am of his work. So it's great to have you here today, Tim. It's great to be back again. Yeah, looking forward to it. I'm so excited to talk to you. So you're not my typical guest, and we're gonna talk about all sorts of things today. But I have a standard question I ask all of my guests at the beginning, and I'm going to ask you too. Now, I'm pretty sure that you mentioned fasting in the diet myth, which Amazon tells me I ordered in June of 2015. Um, And to put that in perspective, that was right after I had already lost 75 pounds thanks to intermittent fasting. So it was really exciting to read about the benefits that you you talked about fasting bringing to the gut microbiome. So here's my question that I ask every one of my guests. What brought you, Tim Spector, to intermittent fasting, and when was that? I think, well, research brought me to it, and it was probably writing the Diet Myth book, so it would have been about 10 years ago, 2013, when I think intermittent fasting meant something slightly different as well. But 
the whole concept was evolving about 10 years ago and I was quite excited to be part of that and a lot of that was the 5-2 sort of dieting experience but that just got me thinking about this whole area really in much more detail so yeah and I experimented myself with with this and and we did some early microbiome experiments on fasting and all this kind of stuff about 10 years ago really before most people had got into it I think at least the general public. You're exactly right. And I remember all that 5-2. I was dabbling. Those were my dabble years. I didn't get serious till 2014 where I really made it into my lifestyle. But I was dabbling. If a new book came out about something, I was trying it. So I tried 5-2 back in the day as well. So what did y'all find out in your research on fasting in the gut microbiome? Well, originally there wasn't very much. I mean, there was the, there were lots of rat experiments and mouse experiments which are always hard to interpret because clearly, you know, we live different lives to rodents who spend most of their time, you know, eating at night and sleeping in the day, very different to us. But it seemed that most animals had the, these periods of not eating or some animals hibernated. And there was lots of literature on that, those hibernating animals really changing their gut microbes in that time. And that seemed to have some real biological purpose. And so, you know, and then tracing that back to uh, all the major religions in the world having fasting as part of their history seemed to suggest that this, you know, the concept of fasting could be healthy. And yet, having been trained as a, a medical doctor, I was sort of trained that that was a bad thing and that also... I was trying to juggle against a lot of these fad diets that were quite big at the time, these sort of deep cleanses, these purges, stuff that celebrities were doing, a lot of which sounded like complete and utter rubbish and pseudo-medicine to myself and many others. So it was trying to disentangle a lot of the, the hype, but at the same time realizing there was this train of science going through this that seemed to be suggesting there was something there. I think this has just slowly evolved into what we understand now about some of these benefits. That Yes, extreme fasting is probably bad for most people and bad for most animals. When you calorie restrict and you, you don't do it sensibly or you, you do these massive purges with chemicals and you try and, you know, this old concept about toxins, eliminating toxins from the body, which I think is, is basically nonsense. But it doesn't mean that, you know, some degree of fasting or certainly changing our eating times, resting our gut, that all seems to be beneficial. And all the data has been slowly improving in that direction as we've moved from 5-2 sort of fasting, which we realized wasn't as good as we thought it was, to this more time-restricted eating, which is what, you know, most of the, the listeners know about now. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. And, you know, I was just so excited, you know, reading that and thinking, because this was all new to me, the whole idea of the gut microbiome. Really, you know, I'd heard a little bit about, you know, fecal transplants somewhere in my reading. I'd read something about that. But when I really got into the diet myth, first of all, I was fascinated by the twins research. I've always been interested in, in that sort of thing, the impact of genetics, you know, what's in our control, what isn't, individual differences. I learned a lot about the gut microbiome and the diet myth. The idea that what we ate affected our gut was new to me, really. And, you know, I think it was probably pretty brand new cutting edge at that time as well. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty new to me. I mean, one of the reasons I write books is to learn a new subject. So um, I'd only really come across the microbiome, I guess, about two years before starting to write that book. So maybe 2011 or something was when I really first went to some lectures, thought this is going to be something interesting to work on. And there weren't many people in the world who'd even heard about it at that time. There were, you know, a few little centers, but they weren't really getting in the public domain. Most scientists, most doctors had not heard about it at all. And so, yeah, the idea that this was key to a lot of our body and that you could effectively control it through your diet was sort of unbelievable to most people. And many of my colleagues thought it was a fad just dreamt up by companies selling yogurt or probiotics. So 
you know, it was it was quite an interesting time then because you do get these fads in science and medicine, and some of them do just explode and then go away very quickly, and it is kind of hard to spot which is the you know the real deal and which is just made up to sell sell people products. Oh yeah, that that makes me laugh really hard because a lot of them are made up to sell us products, aren't they? Yeah, and it, and that drives a lot of this. So you know when. You get commercial interests. They're the ones who have the money. They can actually get the word out that, you know, these things are, you know, the word probiotic or prebiotic or, you know, gut friendly. If there's produce to sell around it, that'll work in the same way that vitamins, you know, vitamin supplements, everyone seems to know about them. That's only because people can make money out of them. Otherwise, you know, we'd never have heard of them and we wouldn't probably be using them. Because, you know, the doctors and the scientists are not going to promote stuff that has no evidence it works. So I think separating myth from reality was kind of tough. But what's happened with the microbiome world is more and more scientists have got into it, many more publications, and the technology's improved. So we're even better now at actually looking at these gut microbes. We can assay, you know, a, a test the test that Zoe does, you know, this is the personalized nutrition company I co-founded. If 10 years ago we'd wanted to do this, the microbiome fully sequenced, this is looking at the genetic code of all the bugs in our in our gut, it would have cost about $5,000 per person. You know, now it's, you know, just over $100. So, it, you know, it's huge differences. And this has allowed us to do bigger studies. So, 10 years ago, the biggest study on the microbiome would have been about, you know, 400 people. Now at Zoe, we've got 50,000 people in one study, right? So this allows us to do much more and be much more sure of the science than we were right in those early days when, when you've got small numbers, it's very easy to get it wrong. It's very easy to come up with, you know, dodgy experiments. And so I think people were right to be sceptical. It's just great how far it's it's come now. And so, you know, a bit like I, I followed with the early days of genetics, it's not dissimilar. It's not dissimilar to see the same journey with a microbiome as we discover separating the facts and the fallacies, but realizing that, yeah, it wasn't hype. It really is super important. Everyone needs to know about gut health. And the most important realization is your food choices determine your gut microbes, which determine your health. That's so true. And that was what was really life-changing for me is understanding that and that our guts can change. Before we we go a little farther into that, I want to circle back to the diet myth. In your early research, you, you just talked about genetics. And, you know, the whole concept for a while was, oh, everything is determined by genetics. It's all out of your control. You got the genetics you've got. And I know you did a lot of work with identical twins. And then you started looking at their gut microbiomes, comparing them, finding they were different. Tell me some of the most interesting things you learned while doing your, your twin research. Yeah, well, I've been studying twins for 30 years, so I've looked at hundreds of different traits. And basically the first 20 years was just seeing how weirdly similar identical twins are compared to you know fraternal twins or brothers and sisters. And it was only really the last 10 years that I really got into these differences between identical twins. And I was looking for, in a way, the little secret about why, you know, these genetic clones would be different in, say, getting cancer or uh, aging differently or differences in weight and or even differences in mood and depression, because they were quite different. And uh, people don't realize that they're not that similar when it comes to these yes, no type outcomes. And I looked at epigenetics, which is how you can tweak uh, your genes just by chemicals or your environment. But that was only giving me a sort of relatively low signals. It wasn't a big effect. So it was only when I started looking at the gut microbiome in twins, I started to realize, wow, this is the first thing I found in 30 years that's really different in identical twins. And for me, that was a bit of a game changer. And I knew then that I had to sort of really double down on this. Uh, this could explain why all of us are so different in how we re respond to our environments and 
why some of us get diseases that others don't for no sort of apparent reason that we can see or that medical science hasn't shown us. So suddenly this is a whole new insight into our individuality, if you like, because identical twins were only slightly more similar than you or I. So that was amazing considering how close they've lived their lives and, and uh, how they're clones of each other. That really is cool. I, I remember reading about, I don't know, Reader's Digest or something when I was even like a little girl, like identical twins who had been separated at birth and how they were both married to someone with the same name and had identical fences around a tree in their yard. And I was like, they're just exactly the same. But <laughs> you you learned that they're not and it's coming from their gut. Yeah, exactly. And 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 what you you remember is exactly what most people think about twins because they look at their characteristics, the way they smile, the way they giggle, the way they hold their can of beer or whatever it is, very characteristic, but scratch under the surface and they get different diseases, they die at different times and they have very different guts. And that's because the gut microbes are essentially mini pharmacies. And so if they're different, they're pumping out chemicals that are very different, which go into the blood and the brain and everywhere else. So that's what makes them different. Although their genes are the same, the microbes are different. So they're producing a whole different set of chemicals whizzing around the body. And I think this is really fascinating and explains so much of what we didn't know before. I love the way you put that, that they actually have like a pharmacy coming out of their gut. And it's either like good drugs or bad drugs, depending on what, what you have living down there. Now, I want to pivot just a little bit to your second book, Spoon Fed. It's not your second book, but it's your second book that I read. And the subtitle of that is Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food is Wrong. And Amazon tells me I ordered it on November 29th of 2020. I love Amazon. I can go back and see, trace my whole history there. Um, here's what's really cool about when I was reading Spoon Fed. You know, my book, Fast Feast Repeat, had come out in June of that same year. But when I was reading Spoon Fed, I realized we'd talked about the same study in our books and that was the one I've talked about in the calories chapter of Fast Feast Repeat when scientists compared two different cheese sandwiches. One of the cheese sandwiches was made from highly processed bread, highly processed cheese, and the other cheese sandwich was made from more whole versions of bread and cheese. And the interesting finding from that was it took almost 47% more energy to digest the less processed version, meaning, you know, your body had to do more work to break down the, the less processed sandwich. And the metabolic rates of the participants actually went up as they digested the meal. So anyway, I thought that was cool that we talked about the same study. But can you explain that just a little bit more and why that is so significant? Because you know, people are so caught up in calories and, you know, a cheese sandwich is a cheese sandwich is a cheese sandwich, but that's not true. We all face stress in our daily lives. What if the answer to a better stress response is in one key nutrient? I'm talking about magnesium, and specifically, Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. This one-of-a-kind product is designed to reverse low levels of magnesium, which could have a positive effect on our stress response. But don't take my word for it. Here's a quote from a 2020 issue of the scientific journal Nutrients. Results suggest that stress could increase magnesium loss, causing a deficiency, and in turn, magnesium deficiency could enhance the body's susceptibility to stress, resulting in a magnesium and stress vicious circle. I only recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress resilience and better sleep. Simply go to bioptimizers.com slash ifstories, promo code ifstories10 to get your magnesium breakthrough and find out this month's gift with purchase. That's bioptimizers.com slash ifstories, promo code ifstories10. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know what a fan I am of Dr. Tim Spector and the work he's doing with Zoe. I was first introduced to his work in 2015, and I've been following his research ever since. What I love most about the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is that they have weekly interviews with world-leading experts who explain how their latest research can benefit your health. Recently, I was thrilled to finally meet him face-to-face -face as we recorded an episode for the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, and this episode aired on 
on April 11th. We had a chance to talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study, and I had the opportunity to explain the clean fast to Jonathan, which may explain why he didn't enjoy his prior experiences with fasting. Search for Zoe Science and Nutrition on your podcast player or on YouTube to hear the latest episode, and don't forget to look for the April 11th episode to hear me, Tim, and Jonathan talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study. No, so the whole thing is really sort of myth-busting about everything we've been told about food. It's As you said, it's all about calories, it's fats, it's sugars, it's, it's, it's protein. And that has allowed us to forget about food quality. And what most of this book is about is how ultra-processed food has taken over the US and the UK and by subterfuge without us really knowing it that we're eating you know 60 or 70% of our meals ultra processed and kids it's even higher because it's just by stealth it's crept in and because we're fixated with levels calorie levels or fat levels all the manufacturers have to do is just fiddle those numbers and they can say it's low in fat low in calories and has a health label on it and yet it's far worse for us. So yes, a lot of the book is, is telling people about ultra-processed foods, UPFs, and explain the latest research on it, which shows that not only a real food, you have to sort of take more effort to eat it. It takes longer to get down your gut. It reaches your gut microbes, so actually feeds them. And it sends the normal signals about appetite, et cetera, to your brain. If you take ultra-processed equivalent, which can look identical, it's more rapidly absorbed, so it goes straight into your bloodstream. It's easier to eat because it doesn't have that structure. You, fewer chews, it just goes straight into the bloodstream, doesn't click into the brain to say, stop eating, I'm full. And you get these other chemicals that aren't you can't find in your kitchen, all the other chemicals that glue it together and keep it you know, lasting on the shelf for weeks, they go to your gut microbes, they interfere with them, they then produce all kinds of weird other chemicals that make you unhealthy and also make you overeat. So people who over identical foods will overeat by about 300 calories a day if they're eating ultra-processed rather than whole foods. Yeah. That's absolutely instrumental. So I want to repeat that. And I've even seen studies that talked about it being as high as 500 more a day. I mean, but it's significant. So not only are you driven to eat more food because of the ultra-processed food, but your body doesn't need to spend very much energy to process it. So you're affecting your calories in because you're eating more. And you're also affecting your calories out because your body doesn't have to do anything. So we can see right there the ultra-processed food messes up calories in and calories out. Yeah, and your gut microbes, yep. which is yep. the other bit of the equation, which, you know, the calorie model doesn't account for. So it's it, it's bad in so many ways. And what really annoys me is they're presented as healthy foods because of these the labels on them that they're allowed to get away with. And the book is all about the power of the food industry, how we got into this mess, you know, how some of these study, early studies were misinterpreted or they were too small. But basically, it's it's about how we've been hoodwinked into eating more and more of this stuff that's basically killing us and our children. And it wouldn't be bad if we knew it was, you know, if we eat Twinkies and Coca-Cola, we, we, no one's going to say that's a health food, right? I'm quite happy with that. People make that decision, but they don't make decisions on most of this stuff that they might get in schools or hospitals or institutions or, you know, they live in a neighborhood, there's no other choice than to eat that. And many people believe it's healthy when they go to the supermarkets and they see those labels. Well, you know, can I pop in there for a minute? Chad, my husband, he has a PhD in medicinal chemistry. He's not a dummy. He's a very smart man. Drug design is his you know, medicinal chemistry. That's his background. But he got hoodwinked the other day at the grocery store. He bought this bread. He likes to buy things on sale. So he goes to our local Kroger, and they put the bread on sale, and he likes to buy it. So he bought what he thought was a really good quality bread. It looked really healthy on the label, but he didn't read the ingredients. It said sugar-free. 
It was a whole wheat bread, sugar-free, they said. And I'm like, look, if it says sugar-free, that's usually a signal for they've added artificial sweeteners. So I look on the label, there it was. They had added all these weird chemicals, and my husband bought it. I was like, what are you doing? Yeah, no, that's a great example. And most breads we eat are ultra-processed foods, and people don't realize it. And they don't have to usually put the labels on it. So many times you don't actually get to see the label or it's confused with whole grain, wheat germ, you know, multi-seed, granary, you know, all kinds of other silly names to disguise the fact that they've got all kinds of chemical rubbish in there. And so there are so many examples like that. And basically, you know, the warning is if if there's a health claim on the food, it's highly likely <laughs> to... <laughs> to be ultra processed rubbish and you should avoid it. There's no health claim on an apple, is there? You know, it's right, like, right. But there would be a health claim on a on a pseudo apple that, you know, is made from apple juice because it's not real. And I think that's that's what we need to to do. So that Spoon Fed was is is a, you know, easy read book about how we've been hoodwinked over the years and how we continue to be and how the lobbyists from these companies are stopping everything happening in Washington or even states trying to get these bans or sugar bans or anything else happening. And they're very effective, just like the cigarette companies were for many years. You know, I talked about that in Cleanish and the whole idea of exactly the whole point of the cigarette companies telling us, oh, it's no problem. It's no big deal. These chemicals are not an issue. And, you know, the whole food industry of you know, all government subsidies here and our corn and weed and soy and all of that is, is subsidized. And so it's in everything. And so the food industry wants us to keep buying these foods because they grow them for cheap because they're subsidized by the government. And then they ultra process them and put them in everything. And then we're just buying them. And we replace expensive natural things with fake bits, fake cream, fake, you know, milk, fake cheese, um, and, you know, pseudo foods. And this is all the time they can make money every time they replace a real food with a, an extract of it or another food of it. So they are really brilliant at this. And, you know, let's, let's face it, they are super tasty and they last a long time. They're tempting. That's why we eat them. And it's virtually impossible to avoid them all. You know, so we're always getting hoodwinked uh, one way or another into eating these foods. And, you know, there's probably nothing wrong with it, eating them occasionally or in small amounts. But, you know, the fact that most people have 70% of their diet this way on a regular basis is quite horrific. And they're over, being misled into overeating, I think, is, is one, of the, one of the biggest crimes against humanity that we're allowing to, to carry on as if it's absolutely fine. And a good example is artificial sweeteners were brought in as a great success, just like, you know, low-fat foods were. And lots of scientists independent are showing that it affects the gut microbes. And in some people, still peaks your blood sugar, strangely, you know, sucralose and things like this. And the food companies pay other people to keep writing reports, reviews, saying there's no real good evidence, they, you know, we need to do more work, we can't be sure. And there's like four times as many paid reviews by the food companies as there are actual academics doing the research. So it's just like the cigarette companies as, you know, they were trying to sell you low tar cigarettes or menthol cigarettes or, you know, milder ones to say there is a safer way. And they're always, you know, they've always got a whole reaction. If people try and say reduce meat, there'll be another group saying, no, we, you know, it's crucial for protein. And it's going to be bad for you. So we're being manipulated all the time, and most people don't realize it. Yeah, that's really, really true. And you know, just to bring that into the fasting world for a minute, you know, there are a lot of people out there promoting intermittent fasting, which is excellent. I love that. But a lot of them have products they want to sell you, like buy my fasting this or my fasting that. And so people will come into my community, and they're like, do I need to buy these special fasting whatevers? And I'm like, no. <laughs> The person telling you you need it also is selling it to you. So, you know, if someone is telling you in any way, if the food industry, you know, selling, telling you you need these artificial sweeteners or, you know, the, the fasting world, you need these special supplements, you know, you don't. What would you sell, Ginny? A, a fasting dummy you can, you can chew on. 
to stop no, curating. I would not. <laughs> I could though. I mean, I, there, there's a lot of money to be made by selling people things and convincing them that they need it. But I'd rather just have people buy my book, and <laughs> read it. Fasting is free. You don't need all that. I joke that I'm going to come up with fasting water. It's just going to be regular plain water, but I will tell you, you need it. Now, I'm not really going to do that. Yeah, super oxygenated fasting water. Yeah. I'm going to have it, my next book, I'm going to have a few extra pages at the end that people can eat if they get really hungry. They could just eat the pages. That would probably yes, be better exactly. for their gut than some of the food that's <laughs> in the grocery store. A little fiber? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. High so let's talk book. about your, your new book, Food for Life. And I've got it sitting right beside me, and it is thick. It's a lot thicker. It's, it's like if I put together the diet myth and spoon fed, this is even more than that. And I was so excited to get it that I ordered it from the UK. So I have the UK version. I don't know if it's different or not, but I have the, the earlier version. Is it that they're the same? They are the same. The, the US version, which is out, uh, I don't know, it came out last week or something, is is exactly the same. Yep. So it's 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 British spelling, but uh, I'm sure, you know, Americans can cope with that. We like that. We don't mind. It makes us feel, feel good to read that. But <laughs> what I liked about the description of it, it's called Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well, and it's described as what we should all know about food today. Why did you write this new book? Well, it took me six years, so I, I wish I hadn't in a way because it was... Uh, <laughs> oh, I get it. <laughs> it. It took far too long. Basically, people had been asking me after the diet myth, uh, they said, and to some extent, you know, spoon-fed, okay, you're giving us the theory, you're giving us the basics of what we should do, but what do I do when I w walk into a store? How do I choose what type of rice to eat? How do I choose what type of bread to eat? How do I pick the right lettuce? You know, should I eat fish? Uh, if so, what kinds? And so it was really a, more a practical guide to the whole of food is what I was aiming at, which was wildly ambitious because it took six years of my life. And I realized why no one else had done it because it is really <laughs> difficult. It is really difficult. You've, you've written a book, Ginny. You know what oh, it's like. Yeah. This is tough, right? So, and I went down so many rabbit holes into each of these foods. I loved it, but it took huge amounts of time. But basically, it was to give people at, who, who read it uh, like a reference book. They always go back to it. And just so next time they are going down a supermarket aisle or they're discussing with friends, they know about each of these food categories and they, they know more or less what they're looking for in a food to choose between them. And they're aware of what ultra-processed foods are as well. They know how to spot them. And really, they can make much better food choices. And I also bring into it this whole idea of personalization. And at the back of it, I've got lots of tables with my food scores in that are from someone that doesn't deal with carbohydrates very well. And it just gives people an idea of this huge difference in rankings, you know, just by picking grains, for example. You can go anywhere from like a, a score of 0 out of 10 to a score of 8 out of 10 just by picking a different grain. Breads go from a score of 0 to 50. And it's all about, you know, being informed so you make the absolute the right choices. And as I, I was writing, I you know, I was surprised all the time things that i thought were sort of healthy turned out not to be and vice versa when you really looked into the detail and, and got to know how some of these foods are made and how they're marketed you know which ones are ancient which ones you know are made up or new ciabatta bread who knew you know that was only invented in the 1980s by italian marketing all kinds of ideas like that well, you know, one thing that just it sparked in my mind, you know, I just recently wore a, a CGM for a month, a continuous glucose monitor, and exactly what you said there. Do you all have Ezekiel bread in the UK? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say Ezekiel bread? No. Okay. I had a feeling you might not. It's It's a sprouted grain bread, and it's got like all sorts of different whole grains in it, and it's sprouted grains. It doesn't have flour. It's really thick and hearty. And when I was wearing the CGM, one day, you know, I like to experiment. One day I had 
Ezekiel bread with an avocado on top. My blood sugar barely budged. I mean, literally, it just like went up a tiny bit. You know, it took my body a long time to to process that Ezekiel bread and the avocado. Well, the very next day, I opened my eating window around the same time with a piece of sourdough bread and an avocado. My blood sugar shot right up. And so it was just, it was fascinating for me to see. And, you know, sourdough bread is also quote, healthier, right? You hear about how great sourdough bread is, and it certainly is delicious. But my personalized glucose response to that sourdough bread was not anywhere like it was with the Ezekiel bread. Yeah, well, that's a great example of how you need to understand much more about things before you can make those choices. And so in the book, I go through these a table of all the breads and basically rank them by the ratio of fiber to carbohydrates. And you can have you know the best smelling sourdough in the world, but it can have just way too much carbs and too little fiber. And that's going to be bad for you, whether it's sourdough or not. Sourdough is not going to save you from that sugar spike. So absolutely right. And I think you know sourdough is a bit oversold. And as I explained, a lot of sourdough is actually fake. So <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> there's no regulation. You can call it sourdough just by sprinkling a bit of you know, sourdough crust from another bread, so it smells of sourdough, but is actually made the modern way, you know, the Chorley method, Chorley wood way, where, you know, it's made chemically and uh, it just smells of sourdough. So really, a lot of the time, you don't know what you're buying unless you've got a really trusted supplier. So yeah, sourdough is an interesting one. So you have to really either have a really trusted bakery or make it yourself. And, you know, the only one that works for me is sourdough with lots of rye bread in it. Okay, so the rye helps your blood sugar response. Rye is really, really good. And it is for most people, actually. It uh, comes out pretty highly. So it's it's trying to replace those grains, the standard wheat with other, you know, with rye and barleys and uh, maybe some of these ancient, ancient grains as well. They seem to be generally good in dampening the response. But yeah, the whole book is full of surprises in terms of what you thought was healthy, not quite as healthy. You know, I learned about fruits and I used to have bananas as my go-to fruit, realized that my scores were pretty bad and that, you know, much better off eating apples and pears. And I have to avoid grapes now together, although I thought they were, you know, that's what you gave sick people. <laughs> so, you know, they're not a health food at all because now the as well as, you know, dried and even dried grapes, raisins are very, very sugary as well. So it's getting people to understand what's in these foods. And yeah, there were lots of fascinating stories. And I changed my mind as I was going through the book about many, many aspects, changed my mind about fish, for example. Oh, that's interesting. How did how did you change your mind there? Well, I, I was a big fish fan. I sort of more or less gave up meat and switched to fish. And as I was reading this, there were studies coming out showing that, you know, the omega-3 studies really showing that it had very little effect in randomized trials with 50,000 people. So omega-3 was no longer the blockbuster fatty acid that we thought it was. And then all these stories and science coming coming out about not only about pollution in fish and mercury and microplastics, but also eating fish really isn't very good for the planet. Most of them come from fish farms. And to supply the fish farms, they have to take little fish out of the ocean. So that's no good. But if you like clams, you like mussels, you like oysters, they're still good, highly sustainable, very nutritious, and small fish as well. So I think just as I did it, you know, I was looking at food from three angles. It was the health angle, the ethical angle, level of cruelty, etc. And the third one, what's the effect of eating that food on the planet? And people don't realize that much more than fossil fuels or where you get your how you drive your car. Your personal choice on food have a bigger impact on climate change than anything else. And I think that that was an eye-opener for me as well. I think that's really important. So I really recommend everyone get this book, you know, Food for Life, Tim Spector, The New Science of Eating Well. It is fabulous. It's the kind of book I like to read a little bit at a time and then just think about what I've read. Or you could use it really as a reference guide whenever you're not sure. But um, it's, it's one I highly recommend. There's a quote from it that I wanted to share that I love because it is it wraps up my philosophy perfectly. And you said, paying attention to daily habits 
is more important than striving for perfection. And of course, with a book called Clean-ish, you know, that's how I feel. So, you know, how have some of your daily habits changed subtly or, or even not so subtly? You know, there were, you talked in there about how you clear fat poorly, so do I. Um, Zoe taught me that, obviously, but we both love cheese. <laughs> so what are, what are just a few of the, the things that you've done, to, you know, for your daily habits versus, you know, trying to strive for perfection? You know, street, cheese is not off the menu, even though maybe we don't eat as much as we used to. It's not off the menu, but I, I would favor cheese over other sources of fat. So I think that's right. If, I, if I've got to sort of reduce it, I, I'm reducing it to the stuff that I really love. And I'm trying to have less at one sitting, you know, nibble a bit of cheese rather than have very large portions, I think, is the uh, the other side of what I do. So, you know, enjoy those, those amazing tastes and variety. I'm, you know, generally a big fan of unpasteurized cheese, so I'm getting the probiotic benefits as well. So you're getting all those live microbes. I know they're harder to get in the US, but if you can get raw milk cheese, you do get those extra, extra benefits. I said I've changed my fruit choice. I've changed my fish habits. I've definitely changed my bread habits, and I, I'm no longer fooled by sourdough labels. And uh, I make a lot of my own bread now or buy predominantly rye bread and, and have, rye, have bread generally more as a treat rather than as a twice-a-day necessity. My breakfast changed, so I used to have a sort of muesli granola, and now that's it's just yogurt and kefir, fermented milk, lots more nuts than I used to have. I still have red wine, but I tend to eat, have that earlier in the evening rather than late at night because I know it can affect sleep. And of course, yeah, my fasting has sort of evolved. I didn't really like the five-two fasting much. Uh, I didn't find that worked me very well but about five days a week I do a by your standards very modest fast but 14 hour overnight fast which most people can handle pretty easily but I don't you know get hung up if I can't do it every day or if I'm and I do know I've noticed it's it is tough when you're traveling and you you know you you've got the breakfast buffet there you've paid for it (laughs) yeah that is a challenge a lot of intermittent (laughs) fasters face they're like but it's free (laughs) (laughs) I actually fell victim to that myself just over a year ago I was at a hotel free I had the breakfast at eight in the morning and then I felt like crap the rest of the day so but you know it's no harm I say to people there's no harm in doing that and just see how you feel after it you know because yes and if you are going to go for it, at least go for a big diversity. So you get, you know, maybe try and get lots of different fruits and uh, and things into you at that time, rather than just one big plate of waffles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mine mine included grits and eggs. It was a southern old hotel. Oh, southern. Oh, grits. Yeah, oh, so, dear me. So, I, can't, I can't get on with your grits, I tell you. Uh, they were so good. I struggle. <laughs> it, was, it was worth it for two reasons. One, it was delicious. And two, because it reminded me why I don't eat at 8.30 in the morning. I was hungry the whole rest of the day. So I've got some questions for you from my community, just a few. And first is from Katie. And she said to tell Tell you how life-changing your work has been for her. She said, for me, it's lifting the cloud of unknowing when it comes to my individual nutrition needs. The knowledge I have gained through the testing is invaluable. And she's talking about Zoe. So both Katie and another member of my community, Denise, want to know this. When or how can people retest to check up on their gut health? Because that's what people want to know. Like they do Zoe, they get the results. Some of them are shocked that their gut scores are terrible, right? (laughs) And then they they want to work on that, but then they want to be able to retest and see, you know, or do something to see if they've, they've improved their gut. So what should people do in that case? Well, don't tell anybody. I hope nobody's listening. Okay. No one, no one's listening. (laughs) Well, just between us, we are going hopefully to be introducing retesting this year. So people will get a chance to test their, how their gut microbes have changed and maybe if they want to, their, their other blood tests, blood workup, et cetera. So that's coming. Hopefully we'll announce something in the next couple of months. And we're just making sure that it's all working properly before we release it because we don't want lots of upset people saying that, you know, 
they haven't got the results they wanted. So we understand that is really important. And it this is why Zoe is, you know, it is an ongoing program rather than a single test. And I think this is why all these changes we're making, whether it's intermittent fasting, it's, you know, picking your foods differently, it's eating, you know, with the Zoe scores, all this stuff has to be sustainable for years, you know, to be useful. And that's that's why. So this this is all part of that process. So yeah, don't tell anyone, but it's definitely coming. Okay. Well, I did Zoe the first time in 2020, and I really wasn't ready for the information at the time. I was mad about what it said. I didn't like it. Also, I was going through menopause at the time. So, you know, I, I know y'all have done some some research into menopause and how that affects women and our blood sugar control. And, you know, I sure did experience that. But then I redid Zoe. Even I was like, can I do it again? And your people were like, do not say it's a retest. We do not have retests. But, you know, I, I did get different results. You know, I'm on hormone replacement therapy now, and I've been working on my gut now for years. So it felt great to see that that my scores were better. And, and I really enjoyed that. So I know pe- people are going to be excited. And the gut does change with age and as it, and with menopause and with medications, all kinds of stuff. And so no one's really done this on a large scale before. And that's, you know, so everything we're doing really is is totally unique. So, you know, we're on this this journey together to work out, you know, how do you how do you sort of keep track of this this very dynamic community that's uh you know changing all the time and work out whether it's all in the right direction or not. But I think um once we get going, we're gonna accumulate so much data, it's it's just gonna be amazing and, and people are really gonna want to get engaged with it. Absolutely. Now, speaking of the gut and how it can change, I'm going to throw something out. You might not know anything about this, but you might know a ton. So I just, I know that you were involved with, you know, monitoring COVID with your app. And so I've seen in the intermittent fasting community, we've got people who have been maintaining for years, who have been doing intermittent fasting for a long time. And recently, we've seen a connection between people who have had, you know, sudden weight gain after being weight stable. And we're like, why is this happening? And we found a lot of the people had just had a COVID infection, you know, that seemed to be the pivot point. So I found an NIH article from November of 2022, and the title of it is COVID-19 Disrupts Gut Microbiome, which is a pretty self-explanatory title. Do you know anything about that, including maybe short or long-term effects? And, you know, could that explain the sudden weight gain that weight-stable people had seen? You know, they hadn't changed what they were doing, but all of a sudden now they're gaining weight like crazy. Could it be COVID impacting their gut microbiome? And if that's true, what can they do about it? I know that was a lot that I just threw at you. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. It's a very tough subject to study properly because most people have been exposed to COVID now or the COVID vaccine. And what they did show is that people who had severe COVID had quite disrupted gut microbes. They couldn't separate out whether that was due to the COVID 
or just due to being very unwell. Okay. And so that's that's a bit of a conundrum. Certainly, COVID really affects the immune system and the gut is really absolutely at the heart of the immune system. And so it's it's possible it works in both ways. If your immune system's poor and your gut microbes are poor, you might more likely to get severe COVID. And we, we know that's, we think that's true because they've got some data from our, our, our studies. But the opposite is also true that if you're unwell, temperature, sick, you know, inflammation, that's also going to affect your gut microbes. And so it works in two directions. So I can't say I can understand the sudden weight gain after COVID other than it, you know, it potentially might be an immune shock that just uh, switches things around. But it could be a, lots of other things we still don't really understand about this virus and you know whether it got into your brain or affected other things directly rather than through your, your gut microbes. So the microbe data has been confusing. We, did, we looked with my colleagues at King's on, on long COVID versus short COVID to see if we could find microbe signals that clearly indicated one state or the other. And we there was no difference. We were very disappointed, but we were desperately trying to show certainly long COVID was due to a change in the microbes. We couldn't see it in several hundred people. So I don't know is really the answer, but these are really interesting questions. It is interesting. It's just something that we've we've seen and, you know, there's a lot going on in the body. And like you said, could be your brain, could be your gut. And so it's hard to know. And I think it's interesting that scientists are, are looking at it and trying to figure it out. But there is just so much we don't know. All right. I have another question. This is from Julia, switching topics. Um, she said, what does the science say about protein powders, meal replacement drinks, and collagen supplements? She goes on to say, I am not convinced they do all of the things they claim, but she would like your scientific viewpoint. And I have to admit, I agree with Julia. <laughs> about your protein powders, meal replacement drinks, and collagen supplements. What do you think about those? Well, in one word, not much, or two words, not much. I don't think any of those claims can be substantiated, really, except possibly meal replacement drinks for people who are undernourished or aren't able to eat properly. And they are used in old age homes and care of the elderly, people who are protein deficient, etc., who are frail. But for young, healthy people, these products are not useful. And collagen supplements, you know, for bones or skin are a complete waste of time. There's no scientific basis at all. Thank you for all. saying that. Because, you know, I... I, I'm on the other side of menopause now, and we, our skin does something really different. Women on the other side of menopause, we got that little sag going on, and it's collagen. As After we go through menopause, our bodies can't produce the collagen that they used to be able to produce when we were younger. So the collagen industry wants to sell us collagen that we take. But from what I've read, tell me if I'm right, when we, let's say I drink a collagen supplement, liquid or something or other, my body breaks down that collagen supplement into individual pieces, then my body still can't reassemble it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's completely of no use. You're just going to pee it out, basically. That's what I thought. So it just goes straight down the toilet. So none of that is going to get into your skin, unfortunately. But what's interesting is many people, it has a big placebo effect. So many people, it's like the vitamin supplement industry, you know, People like to think they're doing something good for themselves, nice packaging, lots of marketing. Yeah, you'll get people on average saying, yeah, I think my skin's, you know, maybe 10% better when it isn't. Right. So do you take any supplements at all? I take some B12 because I don't get much meat, but I generally prefer to eat meat once a month or twice, once or twice a month rather than take supplements because the vast majority don't work. I used to take omega-3s. I used to take vitamin D, but all the studies are showing they don't work. So I've stopped them. That's so interesting. So what do you do for vitamin D? That's something that's, you know, for me, I always am low in vitamin D and people are always telling me to take vitamin D. Do you just try to get more sun? What do you do? Yeah. I mean, you may be low in vitamin D, but it doesn't mean that taking it in an artificial form is going to help you. And also we found that genetic, we've done tests showing in twins showing that it's quite genetic. So some people just have genetically low levels and that might be their normal level. 
That's so interesting. What's normal is very different for everyone. Could that be related to like like the the latitude of your ancestors, for example? Like, you know, you just where, yeah. I mean, we know that huge differences around the world and that, you know, Europeans mutated their skin to be able to live with less vitamin D. And that's why, you know, and absorb it from their skin. So the best way to get vitamin D is to go out outside you know, for at least 15 minutes a day and you get it naturally. And, and it's that's why vitamin, vitamin D is not a vitamin because you can actually make it yourself, uh, as most animals can. Another interesting way, which I discuss in the book, is you can actually get vitamin D from sunbathing or mushrooms. You buy mushrooms and you leave them on your windowsill for a couple of days, they will produce vitamin D and then you eat them and you get the vitamin D that way. Oh my gosh, I love that. That that's that's my kind of supplement, right? <laughs> a mushroom. And then it's doing you some good as well. So rather than a, a tablet, you know, made in some Chinese factory that's of poor quality that a lot of it won't get into you, you're actually having a real food as well. And that's that's how we should be having our vitamins again through food or in the case of vitamin D, a small amount of sunshine, you know, every day is what we should be doing. And most women don't realize that they're, they're generally wearing foundation cream, which completely blocks the sun. And there's no need for that in winter, you know. And we've been conned into thinking we need this and that we're all going to die of melanoma and things. But it's not really true. Well, yeah, I appreciate hearing that. And you've just really made me feel so much better about my low vitamin D because I, you know, talking about the genetic component and, you know, I feel like, duh, I should have figured that out myself. You know, we've got this range of what is normal, but just like we're all different in everything. Why wouldn't we be different in what's normal for vitamin D levels based on our genetics? So I want to circle to a question that Pam asked, and it's it relates to what you just said about not eating a lot of meat. I don't eat a lot of meat either. I don't have meat every day. I have it more than, I have it weekly, but Pam wants to know, are there any meats that score highly on Zoe? And if not, what is the science behind that? And I think I know the answer, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, Zoe makes a distinction between ultra-processed and relatively unprocessed meats. So things that are in minced meat and frozen lasagnas and sausages score poorly because of the chemicals and the poor quality of the meat and the uncertainty of what's in it. So that's that difference. Then you've got in the sort of pure meat categories, it scores the lean ones better than the fatty ones. And that's based on our current evidence. We don't aren't able to look at individual responses to protein at the moment, only really the fat component of the meat obviously contains very little carbs. That's the way we score it. So uh, lean cuts of Meat, such as chicken, for example, will score higher than a fatty piece of lamb or goat or something like this. So that's roughly where we are. And we're also keen to make sure that people have relatively small portion sizes. Yeah. And would it also have to do with like things are scored based on the effect on your gut? And meat is not one of those things. It's like making your gut better, right? Correct. We don't. it's, It's sort of fairly neutral on your gut. And so it's scored fairly neutrally uh, if it's good quality. And I think that's that's the way to the epidemiology generally sees it. It's not, you know, a fantastic thing to eat, but in moderation, it's not a particularly bad thing to eat. And I think that that's the way to see it. Uh, the only danger with meat is it takes too much room on your plate. So you don't have enough room for, <laughs> for your vegetables, room for the plants. Exactly. So I, I want to mention this really quick. Someone, Donna, in my community said, we're in the dark in Canada without Zoe. What else can we use to help us on our journey? Are, are there any plans to bring Zoe other, to other countries? Or what can they do? Probably nothing in the next year, but the rate we're going, we will be able to open it up after then. And all I can say is, you know, you can book a holiday in the US or the UK and uh, leave your hotel address and you can get it done that way. Or have some friends to that, stay well, that'll the work. Yeah. <laughs> we tell that to people in New York as well, because New York has those crazy laws about not letting them do all that testing. 
Yeah, exactly. The, the doctors' union won't let them do that, so that's why they they can't do it. So they can. Like, people escapes. are like mad, like it's your fault. They're like, "Why won't Zoe let me do it? I live in New York." I'm like, "Yes, it's Zoe. Zoe hates New York." I'm like, "No, they would love for you to be able to do it in New York." It's the <laughs> speak to the mayor. Speak to the mayor. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So all these other countries. Yeah, we plan to get there, but we're focusing on the U.S. and the U.K. first, certainly for the next year, particularly as we we we're still, you know. The product is still evolving. It's still getting better. And we're getting the retesting going and all these other profile projects. But, you know, any any trips people have, they can order it there and get going. I will speak to you saying it's getting better. It absolutely is getting better. I have friends that went through it when it was Predict 2 or, or a long time ago. I didn't do it at that point. I did it in 2020. And then again, like I said, in 2022, the 2022 experience was different than the 2020 and definitely better. It's improving all the time. Your database is better. Using the app is better. You know, the f- more food's in there. I was really, really pleased with that. Before we run out of time, we're about to run out of time, I want to talk very briefly about the recent intermittent fasting study that y'all did. I know you haven't released all of that information to the public yet. Dr. B, Will, author of Fiber Fuel, he's your, is your U.S. medical director. What is his role with Zoe? Yes, that's right. He, he told me y'all had gotten some, some results back. What can you share with us about that? Well, I can tell you that about... 80,000 Brits took part in this experiment using our, our free uh, health app. And they they enrolled, and basically they had to just record their mood, their exercise levels, their uh, appetite, and their weight every day, a baseline for a week, and, and put their normal t- eating times in. And then we asked them to go to a 10-hour eating window for the next at least two weeks. And for some people, it was another four months. The vast majority of people managed to do this. And we got the people to choose which window they wanted to, early or late. So that was a free choice. And what was interesting is that most people chose to eat late and skip or delay breakfast. That was the more practical one. Although we did tell them, you know, evidence is slightly in favor of the early eating rather than the late eating, they just voted with their feet and said, <laughs> don't mind, most of us are going to do the you know, the more practical one for Britons anyway. And remarkably, most people managed to do it, no problems, which, you know, people were worried about, oh, they'll never be able to do that. You know, we're not having given them any sort of education about it. So the first thing was compliance was really good. And basically, even people that were eating late, so not finishing their meals till 9.30, still got benefits from the fasting. So on average, people's mood improved, their energy levels improved. And we did see some some weight loss, not huge, but on average, there was some weight loss. And again, in lots of winners and losers within these categories. But I think the experiment was larger a real success particularly in showing how you couldn't just tell the average population just to do this and they will do it and it's quite easy well good i'm glad that went well yeah and so many people have carried it on and say they feel great you know just the idea of experimenting with different times i think was very totally new to many people in this so it's educating bringing intermittent fasting to a whole new audience which i think is great yeah, I think so too. And as far as the the weight loss in fast feast repeat and in my community, we tell people that it's very likely they won't see weight loss for the first month. <laughs> so I'm glad you had a little positive effect there because people your your body has to adjust. There's a lot that has to go on behind the scenes. We think actually that people lost weight probably because they didn't late night snack. Uh-huh. And that is a lot of calories people are consuming just without thinking. Just having that, when the boundary of window closed stopped them from the mindless eating. I think you're right. That's probably why even in those first few weeks, there is a little bit of weight loss. I think it's just because people are more mindful about what they're eating. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Well, this has been fantastic. I normally end with the same question. It's not quite as relevant to you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What would you tell someone just starting out with intermittent fasting or what do you wish you knew when you first started, I'm going to say, dabbling with intermittent fasting? 
I tell everyone to give it a go, but I'd also say that everybody's different and that other people's experiences don't necessarily relate to your own. I 100% say that too. So I think everyone can benefit from it, but you've got to find your own way to do it. And you might be a morning person, you might be an evening person, but I think we'll all benefit from giving our gut a rest. You're just going to work out the best way for you to do that. And I think that's really exciting as we go back really to the way that we used to eat, you know, our ancestors used to eat. And it's a journey that everyone needs to take. And, you know, it's fighting the commercial machine, the marketing that wants us to be eating all hours of the day. I feel so much more energized when I do do it. And I think everyone, as we've shown in our big if study, you know, many people out there could benefit just by changing, you know, the way they eat. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. I think listeners are going to love this episode, and I appreciate you being here. So everybody, go out and get a copy of Food for Life by Dr. Tim Spector. It's been great. Thanks a lot, Jen. Do you have an intermittent fasting story to tell? Email me at jen at intermittentfastingstories.com, and I'll add you to the lineup. That's G-I-N at intermittentfastingstories.com. The world wants to hear your story. That's it for today. Remember, I may have a doctorate, but I'm not a medical doctor. So don't use anything you hear on this podcast as a substitute for medical advice. Please always check with your doctor or healthcare provider if you have medical questions. I'll talk to you next week, Fasting Family, where we will hear another inspiring story. Have a great week and fast on. Intermittent Fasting Stories is edited, mixed, and mastered by Resonate Recordings. To learn more, visit them at ResonateRecordings.com or email them at hello at ResonateRecordings.com. Intermittent Fasting Stories listeners will receive a free offer if you mention that you heard it on the podcast. Hey, listeners, it's Will Arnett. Our podcast, Smartless, has crossed a milestone that seemed unfathomable when we started nearly four years ago as we've just released our 200th episode. Join us as we welcome that dynamic duo of hilarity, Steve Martin and Martin Short. You've seen them on screen together in The Three Amigos, Father of the Bride 1 and 2, and most recently, and Only Murders in the Building. Both are comedic geniuses in their own right, but together they are always electric. And this episode of Smartless is no exception. I don't know if I've laughed more in a single episode than this one. We discuss their career arcs both separately and as a comedy team, how they met, who is more difficult to work with, and what motivates them today. Is Steve a better banjo player than Marty as a singer? Find out on this bicentennial episode of Smartless. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Plus, you get to hear Sean cry. What a loser! 